Is it time for a nationwide increase in America's minimum wage? The answer to that is on hold for the moment in Washington, but the question is burning. After all, the minimum wage was last set at $7.25 an hour in 2009. It would take a buck and a half more than that just to cover inflation. Now, many Democrats, including President Biden, want an incremental raise to $15 an hour by 2025. Professor Ed Lemer, now retired as a senior economist at UCLA, says it's right to be outraged by America's current income inequality, but he does not buy that nationwide increase in the minimum wage. Hello again, I'm Orman Alney, and this is How the World Works, a podcast from the UCLA Anderson School of Management. Ed Lemer, welcome back. Thanks. It's great to be back. Now, once again, the national minimum wage is $7.25 an hour. California already has it at $14 an hour. In San Francisco and Seattle, it's higher than that. Doesn't income inequality, which is so vast and growing so fast, dictate an increase in the minimum wage? So just as a point of introduction, I was asked uh, a week ago to make a presentation next week and to identify in that presentation the three critical factors that are going to affect the U.S. economy and U.S. politics over the next couple of decades. And my number one is income inequality. Number two is fiscal child abuse. That's a reference to all those deficits. And number three is uh, global warming and climate change. So I put income inequality right up there at the top. And the reason that's so critical is we're having a heck of a hard time supporting our democracy, given the income inequality that has occurred. And I worry it's only going to get worse. How do you think it affects democracy? One of the big drivers of income inequality is the decline in manufacturing jobs. Back in the 60s, we had about 35% of our workforce in manufacturing, and now it's only about 8%. So if you're a high school graduate back in the 60s, you had a prospect of having a decent middle-class American life by following your father's footsteps and going to manufacturing, that's totally gone now. So what the heck are high school graduates going to do in the world we live in? The result of that is substantial decline in earnings over the last 30 or 40 years of individuals who have high school degrees. And the reason we had Trump and the reason that we have continued problems is there's a huge number of disgruntled Americans who are in the middle income. They don't want the low-wage, minimum-wage job. They want to get back to the decent jobs that their parents and grandparents had in manufacturing. That's the middle income. At the upper level, in addition, if you look at the data, you'll find out that the biggest increases in compensation occurred for those who worked long hours and had high degrees, a substantial educational attainment. And that speaks to the role that technology is playing in driving the economy. And that problem with the internet-based technology is talent is a critical input. So essentially, with a little bit of training, anybody could have worked in manufacturing, but to do coding and to create new products in the tech sector, that's not just education. It also takes talent, and that creates a deeply unequal income distribution. And we haven't even gotten to the bottom yet is where the minimum wage is. So I really think that 
These issues need to be addressed all along. We need to find decent jobs for high school graduates and make sure that the high school graduates get pushed along in the educational attainment. And we need to deal with this new technology, which is creating a very much talent base, leaving most Americans out of play. Well, all those things you're talking about uh, with the disappearing middle class and the disgruntled Americans who have plenty to be disgruntled about would suggest that the problem is now. Your suggestions, it seems to me, would take time. What's wrong then with increasing the minimum wage? Well, we can do the minimum wage now, but let's not pretend it gets close to dealing with all the big problems. Another problem I think that's very critical is uh, we don't think of ourselves as part of a common country anymore. It used to be the CEOs of all the major companies thought of their employees as part of their family and they made sure they were well taken care of throughout their lives. With the financialization of the economy, that's totally changed. And what matters for the business community is financial values and profits in the next quarter. That has led in part to the decline in manufacturing jobs because Americans got rich by moving jobs offshore, moving them from high paying wages in the United States to low paying wages in Mexico or China or Thailand or and so on. So I think we need to have a little bit less emphasis on material well-being and a whole lot more emphasis on being a good neighbor, not just for your wealthy friends, but everybody in America. The problem with that creates the issue of the minimum wage is too many low-skilled workers chasing too few jobs. That forces down the wages. So the cure for that is to produce an economy that has fewer of those low-paid workers and uh, more jobs for them, more higher-paid jobs. So where do the supply of workers come from? It's really our failing educational system, the high schools and earlier, that have created graduates that can't do much other than the most low-wage jobs in uh, restaurants and hotels. So one thing we need to emphasize is improving the educational experiences, particularly in the neighborhoods that have for decades been left behind, meaning that if you were born in one of those neighborhoods, the chance of you ever getting a decent job or even getting a high school degree was really pretty bad. And it's it's still now the case that we have a huge human resource that is underutilized in this country. That's all the kids who are growing up in these neighborhoods. So if you ask me, I would start making a big effort to improve the quality of schools and improve the neighborhoods for these neighborhoods that have been traditionally left behind for decades and decades. That would help cure the problem that the minimum wage is intended to cure. So I'm really saying let's not lose focus on what the real issues are by treating a symptom of the minimum wage. Since it'll take a long time to increase education in the manner that you suggest, what's wrong with creating a common sense of everybody being on the same page by increasing the minimum wage so that everybody at least is able to stay out of poverty? Well, um, that requires a change in the business attitudes. They have to regard the employees as part of a family, and they would be happy to pay that higher wage rate. But if they behave according to the competitive market forces, that higher wage inevitably comes with fewer number of jobs. So do we need to do something then about capitalism itself? Does it need regulation? Is one of the regulations it needs a common minimum wage? Well, I think that'd be good. I think the idea of having some kind of tax breaks for the firms that create good jobs would be a good thing. So let's think about what the symptoms are and make sure that we focus the attention in a correct way. I don't mean to say that I'm against the minimum wage. I think it has some benefits, 
I think there is a minimum wage which is too high. I think there needs to be some adjustment between uh, the high-wage states and the low-wage states. The high-wage parts of California can easily deal with the 15 without laying off workers, but the lower-wage counties in California might have a more difficult time. But if you look at some of these counties in Louisiana and Alabama, the rate of pay for the folks who live there is so small. To go up to 15 is almost like doubling the salaries that they've been earning. And it seems inevitable that business is going to be reacting to that by hiring fewer workers, not necessarily laying them off, but hiring fewer workers going forward. So your objection then, in part at least, is to having the same minimum wage in places where the economy is really quite different. Yeah, exactly. I've thought of the California as an experiment that addresses that issue because we've raised now the minimum wage, I think it's to twelve fifty, going up to 15 in a couple of years. And that applies to every county in California. But there are some high-wage counties like San Francisco and Santa Clara. Los Angeles is sort of in between. But there are some very low-wage counties in the eastern part of California and the north. And then the question is, if we look at what happens to jobs as well as wages in these counties that have overall low wages, are they hurt by the minimum wage or are they helped? That that would help us answer the national question, whether it's wise to have very high minimum wage across the board in all counties of the United States. Uh, you said that you'd worked with the city of Los Angeles. I believe you also worked with Pasadena. What did you find? What was surprising? Well, they were asking what would happen if they did the minimum wage. So it wasn't exactly finding, it's sort of analysis and, and telling them what might happen. Now, what was interesting when the city was putting in place their minimum wage, the county didn't have that minimum wage. So there would be streets in Los Angeles County, one side of which would have a $15 minimum wage. The other side would have $9.50 as the legislation was originally proposed. So I thought, boy, if that doesn't cause an employment effect with restaurants moving from one side of the street to the other, it's never going to occur. This is an experiment that's going to be very interesting. Well, unfortunately, the state passed a minimum wage law that covers all counties that was almost exactly the same as the city. The city is a little ahead of the state in terms of choice of minimum wages, but its movement is very similar, and, and therefore you ruined that experiment. Pasadena was similar. So Pasadena had uh, passed a law that they would go along with the city minimum wage for one year, and at the end of the year, they had to have an analysis as to whether that was a good thing or not. And to me, I said it was way too early to determine that, but you've got an impossible situation because no matter what you select, you're going to create boundaries that have different minimum wages, and that's going to have potential impact on the businesses that are operating close to those boundaries. But then along came COVID-19, which wrecked all the data. I was hoping to find all kinds of decisive information, and then COVID-19 prevented that from ever occurring. I always thought, by the way, that the minimum wage employment effect would mostly show up during recessions. Businesses during expansions are focused on growing their business, getting more customers, improving the quality of the product. They're not cost control. They might have two or three workers who aren't productive enough, but they're going to ignore that because their energy is going elsewhere. When the recession hits, the only way to maintain profitability is by cost control. And that's where you start thinking about cutting the workforce. And you're going to particularly cut the workers whose pay is high compared to their productivity. So I always thought that we wouldn't see the real impact of the California minimum wage until the next recession came. Now COVID-19 has kind of undone that.
I was going to ask about some of the big companies, including Amazon and Target. They're not all in places where the economy is doing all that well, and yet they have committed to $15 an hour. What's the impact of that? I think that's great. I mean, that's coming back to what you said before, is a sense of community. Thinking about the workers as somebody that lives in our same community, you want to see them do well. So the idea of raising their wages is something that the businesses should be happy about, rather than thinking of it just another cost and something to be avoided. What's the impact uh, when they come in with something so powerfully different as a $15 minimum wage? Well, they might be able to drag some of the other businesses locally in their direction, but more likely this is going to be a new kind of income inequality where the workers who get the Amazon jobs will be the wealthy people in the neighborhood and the rest will be falling behind. This reminds me of the Ford Motor Company. Henry Ford was having a problem with turnover at his factories. So he raised wages by a factor of two, I think, from $2.50 an hour to $5 an hour to stay on a job and to stop making errors. That could be true for Amazon, too. With that higher salary, they will get much more reliable people as a result. And yet it'll have a detrimental effect on the economy by creating a new class of people. Yeah, unless those people are going home and sharing it with their friends. How do you level it out and increase the minimum wage anyplace when, in fact, we already have a sort of stratified system? So we're talking about raising the wages at the bottom. That inevitably is pushed beyond the point of the minimum wage because each business has to have some kind of internal reward for people working hard. And if you're being paid $15 and a penny and all these people all of a sudden at 15 that doesn't seem right. So those people who would be close to 15, they'd be pushed up as well. So the impact on minimum wage goes beyond that group of individuals who are directly affected, but affects others within the firm. As I understand it, the Congressional Budget Office says that 17 million workers would be raised above poverty if you could increase the minimum wage. Is that a reliable kind of statistic? There are other economic studies that say very different things, including some that say more people would lose jobs than would be raised above poverty. Well, I recall the Congressional Budget Office has an estimate of something like one and a half million jobs lost. Isn't that correct? I guess that is, yeah. So even the CBO then has an argument against the increase. Well, it's easy to look at the historical record and find out how many workers have been paid this last year at a rate less than $15 an hour and compute the benefits if those workers actually made 15. That's easy to do. Now, whether that actually happens or not depends upon the layoff issues. So offsetting that is a kind of speculation about what the layoffs might be. I I would add that the academics, there's many, many articles that have studied uh, various kinds of minimum wages in the United States and elsewhere. And the truth is it's very hard to find reliable estimates of employment losses. And my view is the reason that wage effects are apparent but employment effects are not is because the legislation requires, in California, for example, an increase in wages on January 1 of each year. You're in violation of the law if you don't do that. These companies are naturally going to do that, but there's no equivalent requirement with regard to employment. So firms will hire fewer workers ahead of the minimum wage increase if they thought that they might have to lay them off at some time, or they'll delay the layoffs until the economy becomes more troubled, until cost cutting is the most important. So the employment effect is spread broadly over time, 
and it makes it very difficult to pick up. And frankly, I found what I thought was evidence that limited service restaurants were losing employment California low-wage counties through 2019. Yeah, let me just interrupt you for one second. Some new terms are now cropping up because of COVID. Go ahead. In a full-service restaurant, you're seated and there's a wait staff, but in partial service, that means you pay in advance. Yeah, but the full-service restaurants were actually gaining employment. So it's as if the attempt to pass the cost of the minimum wage on to their customers primarily affected the prices in the limited service restaurants because they had many more minimum wage workers. And that price increase encouraged people to switch from the limited service restaurants up to the full service restaurants where the price was a little bit higher, but not so much as not the gap was not as much as it was before. What about the idea of accommodating the minimum wage to the number of employees in a given company? Well, the California state legislature has put into place a minimum wage that is lower for firms that have 24 or fewer employees. So that could be done on a nationwide basis as well. And that's the reason for that is this idea that there are lots of startup firms that are struggling and they're small in the restaurant business, a lot of mom and pops. And the restaurant business is one of the few places that is still American in a sense that you can begin as a busboy or a waiter and you can end up owning the franchise. So if we put a restriction on the wages paid for those individuals, it's going to be harder for those small firms to get going. It makes it tougher on immigrants who are trying to start up restaurants as well. There's all kinds of escape valves that ought to be put in. We're just identifying a few of them. Uh, We started out talking about a national minimum wage. Is there enough information for the Congress to determine county by county or even state by state that the minimum wage should be different in different places and require it? Well, there's something called the quarterly census of employment and wages. And the word census refers to the fact that every business entity in the United States is required on a monthly basis to report how many workers they had, how many on a payroll, and what the total payroll was. And with that information, you can compute the average weekly wage in every county in the country. And it would be easy enough to write legislation that would say the minimum wage is going to be 30% of that average minimum wage. Overall, that might average out to about 14 and a half, maybe as much as 15. But there'll be a lot of these low-wage counties in, in uh, Mississippi, Louisiana, and so forth, that where the minimum wage would be eight, maybe, or not much more than seven and a quarter even now. Is there, do you think, sufficient support among businesses to adopt a formula like that? It would be uh, something that it seems to me Democrats could say we're raising the minimum wage and Republicans could say we can afford it. I think that makes a lot of sense. I would argue also when I was giving advice to the city of Los Angeles, when they were considering a minimum wage, and I raised the point that you raised a minute ago, that we don't really know its effects, and the effects could be undesirable. So you should build into that legislation some method of monitoring the impact and the possibility of calling off further minimum wage increases when it turns out not to work well for the workforce. Why do you think this is, and whatever happened to that notion of our being a common a nation where uh, companies uh, were prideful about the fact that they were able to maintain workers over a long period of time and uh, help their families after them. That seems to me that's the way to strengthen the economy. 
I think we are too divided to care about each other. I think that the movement of American jobs overseas is a symptom of the lack of caring for the American workforce. But it's not just that. It's every decision that's being made is about cost control and profit maximization and not about creating a high-quality experience for as many Americans as we can have. And I think that the problem that we face as a country is that income inequality has now divided us so extremely between the oligarchs who have enormous amounts of money and the rest of the people are left behind. That lays the foundation for a back and forth between oligarchy and uh, democratic socialism on a political basis because the moneyed class is going to have the ability to buy and to create uh, favorable outcomes for themselves. And the other people are the majority. And if we've got more Bernie Sanders pushing us in that direction, they're going to overwhelm the oligarchs. But to me, we're going to go back and forth indefinitely until we can arrive at a new place where we all care about each other. Well, when you talk about democratic socialism, though, are you really talking about socialism per se, or are you suggesting something like a regulated capitalism? I don't mean socialism in the pejorative sense, but rather a collective concern for each other, and which is evidenced not just by government, but by private actions as well. You don't sound very optimistic. I'm very worried about our country. I mean, uh, to me, the politics has degenerated into a terrible outcome, but also the technology is creating huge issues for this country, unlike anything we faced in the 20th century. Well, as to the unwillingness of business to be concerned about uh, the people that it employs, are there things that could be done at uh, places like the UCLA Anderson School of Management that would help to begin turning things around? Well, now you're getting close to home because uh, one of the problems that we are afflicting our youth with is incredibly high tuitions in order to get a college degree. And the money that has gone in tuitions has increased the salaries of faculty and administrators. So this is the case where one group is taking from another, where they used to be, we were giving them an education, and now we're taking most of the benefit from the, of that education for ourselves. So that's a case where if you ask me to control the universities, the first thing I would do is start cutting tuitions. That idea of taking is important to you. Yeah, I, I want to contrast those who earn their income and those who take it from the rest of us. So my example is Kobe Bryant made a heck of a lot of money. He earned that. But John Paulson, who after the downturn of 2008-2009 claimed that he earned $3 billion, my reaction is he didn't earn it. He took it from the rest of us. He took it from our unsuspecting pension funds that didn't realize what they were doing when they were buying mortgage-backed securities. So if I'm in charge, I'm going to change the tax code so that every taxpayer would have to distinguish that which they earn, meaning the, the contributions that they make to us collectively, and that which they take, meaning they took it from somebody else. And the tax rates would be very high on the takings, but very low on the earnings. So would you support a wealth tax of the sort that Bernie Sanders and Elizabeth Warren have been pushing? I think it's pretty complex to do wealth. It's too easily avoidable. I think we ought to work with the income tax and not with the wealth tax. 
I think the income tax has to be more progressive. That's just the reality of it. So there are things that can be done that you could support as an economist. But once again, the politics seem to be what's getting in the way. Well, I, I think politics is, seems incapable of thinking a decade or two ahead. And that's where we need to really be aiming. I think this infrastructure plan that Biden has proposed has a lot of benefit because it is going to make a stronger, better economy in a couple of decades. People say it doesn't go far enough. Yeah, <laughs> it's gone about as far as it dares. I mean, the problem is that the amount of money that's needed is huge. And the question is whether that should all be borrowed. The thing that needs to be understood, there's good borrowing and bad borrowing. Good borrowing is when I use that money to create for myself higher incomes in the future. I use it for education or equipment that will allow me to produce more in the future. Therefore, that pays for itself. But bad borrowing is when you have a big party and you're just spending it now. It's not preparing you for the future. We've done a lot of borrowing in order to fund Medicare and Social Security. And that isn't at all like growing the economy. The opposite is the case. I'm sympathetic to the deficit spending for infrastructure, but otherwise I'm totally unsympathetic because future taxpayers are going to have to bear the burden of those incredible deficits that we've been running over the last several years. Uh, we've gotten a long way from the minimum wage, and as long as we have, let me ask you this question. There are people who are saying that because of what's happening with regard to climate change, we can no longer afford an economy that requires perpetual growth, that if we do, we'll never overcome the issues of a climate change. I wonder if you've thought about that. I don't buy into that. I think that the economy will be moving in a different direction, but you would still have economic growth. Growth comes from innovation and productivity gains. And even in this new green economy, you're going to have plenty of that going on. So jobs and growth are not the issue. The issue is the patterns of consumption that we're going to experience in the future compared to what we have now. Ed Lemer, it's always uh, absolutely fascinating to talk with you. Uh, thank you so much for being available on this uh, program, this uh, podcast of uh, How the World Works. It's just great to have you. Thank you very much, Warren. It's always great to talk to you. I'm Warren Alney. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of How the World Works. Join us again.